Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to the podcast where we bring you big conversations from our very small state. Rhode Island is in a housing crisis, and that crisis also touches on emergency departments. Residents without housing often use hospitals as a safe, warm place to stay, especially during the winter. Rhode Island PBS producer Isabella Jabillion recently reported on this issue. She joins us along with State Senator Josh Miller, who's been arguing that Rhode Island should use Medicaid funds to provide housing. Our conversation after a quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. Welcome back. I'm here with Senator Joshua Miller and Rhode Island PBS producer Isabella Jabillion. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Isabella, let me start by asking you to describe the segment you've produced titled No Place to Go. It tells the story of a woman named Maureen Sumner. Who is she? So Maureen Sumner is a woman who was homeless in Rhode Island for about six years. She was recovering from addiction when she became homeless. I interviewed her for our show, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, because I think she really highlights how a lot of the time we think that you have to solve someone's problems and then give them housing. But I think a lot of advocates have been talking about housing first solutions. You know, a lot of the times we think, okay, someone has to be sober to then have housing. But it can go the other way around, right? That having housing means it's easier to be sober. It's easier when you don't have to numb yourself to the cold outside. And she got off the wait list and now has an apartment in East Providence. And it's, it's changed her life. Yeah, what did Maureen say about why she and other people experiencing homelessness sometimes go to emergency rooms? Quite simply, people are getting turned away from shelters constantly. I spoke to an advocate on Friday, and she just said quite simply to me, the number one reason people are getting turned away from shelters is a lack of space. Hmm. And, you know, in her case, she got turned away so many times that she just stopped trying. 
Senator, you're now chair of the Senate Health and Human Services Committee, but I know that in 2013, you co-chaired a Senate commission on ways to reduce emergency room visits, which are one of the biggest healthcare costs related to homelessness. What did that study find? That not only is housing a major issue, but also emergency rooms were not only being used for a medical condition or a behavioral condition or those who were highly inebriated, but they were also being used because they knew they were going to get a sandwich. They knew they were going to get out of the rain or the snow, out of the weather. What we started focusing on was the highly inebriated because of how many of those were extremely repetitive in their use of the emergency room for all those things other than medical. And how much does it cost taxpayers when people who are chronically homeless cycle in and out of ERs? Going back to 2013 when we looked at it, the data then was 1800 for a night. The data I tried to get recently is all over the place. Hmm. And some of it is hard for even those who are most appropriate to find that for you, which is also an issue because how can we move forward if people can't get you appropriate data? But we know it's a lot more expensive than housing, as an example. So just from a monetary standpoint, it makes a lot more sense to invest in the housing now as opposed to continue to, to fund. I mean, the extreme example that we got out of the highly inebriated pilot that we did as a result of that study, 114 of the highest utilizers cost $14.2 million wow. in one year. And some of those highest utilizers are over 100 visits in a year. 100 visits to ERs in a year. Yeah. And it's over 120000 per person Wow! Yeah. for a year that we spent on everything but housing for a lot more expensive than housing. Yeah, that definitely squares with kind of some of the things that I found. I interviewed doctors who said they didn't like using this term, but frequent flyers. Yes. And there's even cases where someone will get discharged and they'll come back just a couple hours later. Right. It feels like you know, mowing the lawn, <laughs> you're not actually helping people in the long term. And we're also seeing it has a big impact on care and doctors, too. And even hospitals will have social workers that will make calls to try to get people someplace to go that's not the ER. And their efforts are falling short because they have nowhere for people to go. Isabella, you talked to a couple of emergency room doctors for your piece, and I was struck by Dr. Rebecca Carb saying ERs are safety nets for broken systems. What was she getting at there? Ultimately, the ER is open 24 hours a day. You know, you can go there for warmth. They always have turkey sandwiches uh, was a thing that was mentioned. But basically, I mean, in the case of housing, it's a place you can go when Nothing else is available. Keep in mind, there's also issues with the healthcare system as well that the ER is picking up the slack for. People go to the ER for non-emergency services all the time. They're the safety net for issues with housing, issues with access to to healthcare, it's leading to a degree of, of crowding that is really detrimental for the purposes of the ER, and it's, it's tough on the staff, too. Senator, for five years now, you've sponsored a bill that would allow Rhode Island to tap Medicaid funding, usually reserved for healthcare costs, to provide people who have been chronically homeless with housing. What's the argument for that bill? The argument is based on what we just talked about. Housing is less expensive and more effective 
than going to an emergency room 100 times in one year. Not only does the math work, the outcomes work much better. So, Senator, just remind us what the Medicaid waiver does and what states have it right now. So the newly approved waiver that includes housing has been underway in Arizona, Arkansas, a version of it in California and New York. How it works is you take those with the most acute need, whether it be a behavioral health need, addicted alcohol or SUD, or those with a chronic medical condition, and the waiver allows for six months of rental subsidy for housing for those people. Oh, I see. So a caseworker who navigates somebody to housing and gives them everything they can except being able to pay the rent, that navigator will now be able to pay up to six months of rent as huh. part of their obligation and working with a patient that they are already assigned to. Is the idea that this is a small, relatively small group of people, if you just concentrate resources intensely, you're going to save a lot down the line? Yeah. It's not that the need isn't wider. It is. Yeah. But in our past experience of people not quite getting it in government, we use that population that is chronic, which means they have long-term history, because the math is the most overt to saving money for Medicaid and for the state. What happens after six months? Six months is the waiver that's been approved. There's a real issue about what happens after six months, but at least they have been navigated. Their medical condition has improved, and they are more familiar, both those who work with them and themselves, on how to remain housed. Where does the bill stand? Is there a chance that it passes this year? This is the most optimistic year. For the first time, transitioning from a Trump administration to a Biden administration, these waivers have actually been granted in other states. Yeah, where did you first hear about the idea, though? I remember you talking Fascinating about that. Fascinating story is where I first heard about the idea is I'm a fellow state senator at one of the legislative meetings that we have nationally, annually. And it was uh, Senator Josh Green from Hawaii, who was an emergency room doctor. And a lot of this is advocated based on the emergency room doctor's experience and also working here in Rhode Island with the Providence Fire Department. Mm -hmm. Providence Fire Department know a lot of these people by name. So Josh Green, this ER slash senator, had developed this proposal and gotten some funding on a state level. He went on to run for lieutenant governor, and he was elected in the last election cycle as governor of Hawaii. He's so now governor of Hawaii, He's now governor right? of Hawaii. You've got yeah. to go visit him and talk to him I do more about this idea. I haven't been there. Isabella, I was interested in your interview with Eric Hirsch, a Providence College professor who we've had on the podcast, who's been advocating for homeless Rhode Islanders since 1990. How many beds does he say are needed for homeless people in Rhode Island these days? At present, there are about 300 people that are unsheltered. That's really the gap that we're trying to fill. In terms of how many people are needing some sort of more stable shelter situation, we know about 1,200 to 1,300 people are in an unstable housing situation. Maybe that includes people that are in a tent outside. That includes people that are doubled up with relatives or sleeping in their cars. I was interested, too, in the advice he said that advocates give to homeless people who about going to ERs when it's really cold out. If they are getting turned away, the street outreach workers have advised them to go in and say that they have chest pain. 
it kind of forces the hand of hospital staff to have to run tests. And then that buys a person a few hours in the warm. And as you can imagine, that's a pretty concerning thing, given the fact that the emergency room is full of people that have real chest pain. You know, when I pushed back and I said, is this an inappropriate thing? He said, well, what choice do we have? Even speaking with some ER doctors, they also said, you know, we don't blame the people for coming here because they have no choice. Isabella, you interviewed the state's new housing commissioner, Stephen Pryor. What did he tell you about the housing situation in Rhode Island and what's he doing about it? I mean, there's a couple of things that are happening here. One is that there's a lot of barriers to development. There's a lot of red tape to go through. He was of the opinion that we need to simplify the process for building so that we can incentivize builders to build more. Some advocates I've talked to have also said, let's explore what state land we have and try to take advantage of those sorts of resources to build for people that are in that highest need category. But overall, the takeaway is it's tough for everybody right now. We're talking about homelessness because it's the most extreme case, but the average person is also having a tough time with finding a house to buy, finding a place to rent. And even with our housing voucher system, the example we started with at the beginning, we talked about Maureen Sumner. She waited for a housing voucher for six years. She got her housing voucher, and luckily she was able to find a place. But if you don't find a place and use your housing voucher, within six months, that voucher goes away and you're back on the waiting list. And so it's that tight to find a place. We have to use more than one approach. And when you focus on building housing or creating vouchers, if you need an outcome sooner rather than later, you also have to allocate, and there always has been allocation, to subsidizing housing. And that's how the 115 waiver is designed, is that we subsidize housing. The program affords the navigator who's going to help find housing to pay for rent at a market rate. If you have people in an emergency, they can't wait six months. Yeah, because you're saying that's yeah. those are uh, units yeah. that are already built. Already built. You, you surrender to the market rate. And those who are most at need, you get them housing immediately by subsidizing housing. So there's always a voucher system, building housing, and for those who are most at need, subsidizing. Yep. So you've been uh, looking at this issue for years. What's your message to Stephen Pryor? What's the main thing you'd like to see him do in the year ahead? I would like to see him do subsidized housing. I would like to see him do a range of, of, of things and to categorize by urgency and need, find solutions for those who are most urgent while at the same time that we're building things that have maybe a three-year window based on procurement and construction schedule. Isabella, to finish up, where is Maureen Sumner today? Give us an update on her. Maureen is living in an apartment in East Providence. She has two cats. She has a nurse that visits her regularly. She is so proud to have her own house, and she's actually training now to be a mentor for other people experiencing homelessness. She's not allowed to have 
people stay with her for a very long period of time under the rules of her housing, but she has people stay for shorter periods of time to help them get off the streets. And she said to me, I would take them all home if I could. And so she's very excited to now be a mentor and to give back to the community that she's part of and her friends who are still outside. Senator Miller, Isabella, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. To read more of our reporting on Rhode Island's housing crisis, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe, Rhode Island. Globe columnist Dan McGowan reports that the Henry Barnard School is officially leaving the Rhode Island College campus after this school year. It's going to the Providence Country Day campus in East Providence. Alexa Gagas has an interview with the founder of Flourish Care, a Newport-based platform that connects families with support during and after pregnancy. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. And if you like the podcast, do us a favor. Follow the show and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.